We're in a, in a series on the book of John. John chapter 8, and I entitled this, The Truth Offends. John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. I'm going to read that for you. You can follow along if you have your Bible, if you have it on your, on your phone, whatever, or you can just listen. This is something that we have, uh, we, we have gotten worse at in this, in this culture is just the art of listening. Here we go. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, Jesus said, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you're demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it. And was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. All right, so let's just talk about this. We've been looking at in, in chapter 7 with Jesus teaching. We're looking in chapter 8 as Jesus continues teaching. And, and, and the, the hallmark of both those chapters is there's this back and forth. Jesus speaks, then they raise an objection. Bees, Jesus speaks, and then they say something where they say, you know, no, you know, whatever. Uh, Jesus speaks, and then basically it, it gets down to childhood playground stuff. They're basically getting to the point where they're just saying, no, right? They just, he's just, each, each step of the way, they're struggling with what he's teaching. They don't want to. I can't emphasize this enough. They don't want to believe it because the implications of that belief are too much for them. It means they give up power. It means they give up finances. It means they give up their position. It means giving up so many things. It, they can see the consequences of following Jesus, and they decide, no. You know, we can, man, application from the very beginning. We can struggle with that. We see something, and we're like, ah, that's, a, that's hard. I remember working with teenagers for years and years and years, and one of the things I kept saying is, yes, this is hard. It's scary, but it's awesome. It can be your, the greatest adventure of your life, but it's scary. And people often blanch. They pull back from the scary part. And here we see this, the truth offends. What happens sometimes if you keep telling something to someone and they just don't want to hear it, right? What happens? They attack you. They stop attacking the argument. They stop, uh, they stop dealing with facts and logic and reason and any of that. They just attack you. And we're going to see how that just descends into this uh, and keeps going into this, into this conversation. Because the first thing we see is there's an insult. This is the first point, the insult. This, they're saying, this is who you are. This is who you are. We, we figured it out. You know, sometimes you get into difficult discussions with people and you're convinced that they're wrong. And they, and they resort to, to uh, offending you, to insults. 
And what's hard is to get, you tend to get dragged into this. You know, they say, well, you're just a jerk. I'm not a jerk. And what have you done? You've let the argument slide to where they want it to go rather than stay where it is. And this, these last two chapters are like hammer blows to these Pharisees, to the, t- to the teachers of the law. And they're getting angrier and they're getting angrier because they can't gain the advantage. Each step of the way, they think they have him. And so they descend to, to uh, personal, insult, personal insults. Well, you know, when you have nothing substantive to say, what do you do? You go ad hominem. You attack the person. This is so common, so common. And I, and I mean, ah, man, I know I'm an old dude, and I talk about this kind of stuff. But we've gotten worse at this. Social media has made this easier. Anonymity has made it easier so that, so that attacks on the pers- a person and, and their looks and their weight and, their, and their, the way they talk and all of these things, they're so common. They, were, they happened back then. They happened back then. We know what they thought of people who had a Galilean accent. They thought they were dumb. And so that's why, you know, certain things, we see hints of it. At one point with Peter around the fire, they say, we can tell by your accent. We can tell. You're one of them. You're one of them. And so they've stooped to this, and here we see it. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? So let's look at that for a second. Um, You know, we would think that being demon-possessed would be the worst thing that they could call you, but being a Samaritan for many Jews, was worse than being demon-possessed because for many Jews, they felt like being demon-possessed was like there was a greater power and you were helpless against it. Yes, you probably brought it on yourself, but something has overtaken you. Being a Samaritan gets to the core. It's just who you are. It's just who you are. And so why is this such a bad insult to be called a Samaritan? We kind of touched on this, but let me just review some things. First of all, Samaritans were a mixture of Jewish and Gentile people. So, So they were a mixed race, and that was a horrific thing for Jews who blood purity was so important to them. It was a mixture of Jewish and Gentile people and of the influences, and it seeped into their worship. Um, one rabbi called it an abominable mockery of true worship, the way the, Gen- the Samaritans worshiped. They brought dishonor to God, is what they were charged with. In the act of worship, they dishonored God. That's what they were charged with, with being Samaritans. And that's a huge thing for Jews. The second thing is they were considered, because it's a mix, they were considered half-breeds. Their Jewish blood was polluted with non-believers, with pagans. And so they're saying to Jesus, basically, Jesus, we've done a little background check. We've been stalking you. We've looked some stuff up about you. No one seems to know who your father is. But we know it's not Joseph. Because you, your mom wasn't married to Joseph when she got pregnant. And so, they're calling him something that's the worst thing they can think of. You know, not long after the death of Jesus, there was uh, some, some of the uh, Romans, as they were dealing with the spread of Christianity, they claimed that he was the son of a Ro- Roman soldier, that, he, that his mother was a prostitute. And there's, there's hints of that even, even earlier, that, yeah, your mom, you don't know who your father is because she doesn't know who your father is. She slept around. Probably was some soldier, which, you know, this is, it's hard for us to express. For a Jew, for a woman to sleep with a Roman soldier, the people who are enslaving them, 
It's, it's, it's awful. It's sinful. It's traitorous. It's, it's just the worst thing you could be. And so when they say this, they're insulting him. They're insulting his mother. I mean, man, I remember as a kid in high school, somebody saying something about my mom, and I'm like, okay, we're throwing down now. This is wrong. You can call me names, but man, you start talking to my mom. Then he beat the crap out of me, but that's how those things go when you fight for your mom, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. Anyway, so here's the deal. This is the worst they can say to him. This is the worst they can say to him. They're like, what? This is who you are. They've called him a half-breed. What are, they, what are they saying? They're saying to him, just like they would say to the Samaritans, you are dishonoring God when you say you're honoring him. And they're saying that to God. Really put themselves in a difficult position. And so the Jews looked upon the Samaritans as God's rejects. They despised them. Basically, they're saying, you not only reject, are rejected by God, but you're controlled by demons. Only a demon-possessed Samaritan would dare to question our relationship with Abraham and with God. That's what they're saying. He says, I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Very, it's this incredible response from Jesus because think about what he does. He says, I'm not demon-possessed. He doesn't even mention the Samaritan insult. Why? Because he does know who his father is, and he, he, he says that right there, my father. I know who my father is. Second thing, I think, too, is Jesus has a heart for rejects. He has a heart for the Samaritans. We saw this already earlier in the book of John, with this woman who Jesus loved. He loved her into belief. The way he talked to her, the way he dealt with her, the way he showed her love. Why? Jesus loves the Samaritans. Let's get this straight for us. Jesus loves Muslims. Jesus loves atheists. Jesus loves whoever happens to be the boogeyman of the time for you. Jesus loves those people. He loves them. We have to keep that in mind. And so what does he do? He doesn't slam the Samaritans. Why? Because he loves them. And so he just simply answers and says, I'm not demon possessed. Jesus weaves love into his answer. He flatly denies part of the charge. But he's saying, I will not stoop to racist names. I will not stoop to ugly stereotypes. I will die for the Samaritans. And he immediately puts it right back on them. I honor my father. You dishonor me. You think it'll hurt me? It would hurt me except for one thing. I am not living for my own glory. And he'd already warned them previously, be careful of those who are looking for glory. He said, I'm not, I'm not living for my own glory. And, and, he, and he gives us this statement. I think this is very interesting. He says, I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. He says, the father seeks glory. Now, this gets us to something that I think we need to address. 
Um, years and years ago, we studied the book of Philippians, and, and we addressed it then, but I, I want to readdress it just, just for a moment. And so we're going to pull out a little something from, from Philippians, and, and we're going to talk about it. This whole idea of, of how was Jesus not living for his own glory? What, how does that get explained? Let me show you something. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So in this, in this passage in Philippians, he's going to introduce one of the greatest theological truths in the New Testament. I don't know if I should say it that way. An incredibly great theological truth in the New Testament. But he starts it by saying, I want you to understand how you're supposed to live. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, selfish ambition is this word, erethea. It's the, the, the root word is this idea of somebody who's a very hard worker, but they're, hard, they're working hard totally for themselves, for recognition, for fame, for money, for power, me, me, me. It's all about me. That's why they're working so hard. So everyone else becomes an opponent. This is a person who argues at the drop of a hat. This is a, and, and I want you to see this because I think there's a real uh, cool distinction here. This is a pattern of behavior. This is a way of acting, all right? The selfish ambition. Now, the other one he says is, or vain conceit. Uh, the King James says vain glory, which is spot on. It's, it's dead on. Because the word is kinodoxia. Now, doxa is the word for glory. Kino, when you add it to though, kino is this idea of, some, of uh, someone who's empty-handed, and they're grasping for something to get it. So it's a glory hunger, kinodoxia, vain conceit. It's a hunger for glory. It's starving. It's grasping. I don't have it. I want it. I want it. I want it. For me. Me, me. So the pattern of behavior is everything I do is about me. The underlying foundation of that pattern for, of behavior is why is everything about me? Because I don't have glory. And I want it. And what little I have, I want more and more. Think about that. This is the condemnation. This, is, this sums up the human race. And so we want to matter. Because doxa, uh, glory is this idea of weight, something that matters, something that's incredibly important. We want to matter. We want to be at the center. We want to be big. We want to act important. Why are we that way? Why do we do this? And the Bible gives us a theological answer. It's simply the word sin. Sin robbed us of our glory. We had glory, and we decided we wanted to be our own master. We decided to find our own glory for ourselves. And at the very basic level, sin, the essence of sin, is self-centeredness. Me, me, me. It makes you selfish. It makes you proud. It makes you self-absorbed. And so... Paul's telling them here, he says, you're kinodoxia, you're glory grabbers. You're trying to grit it any way you can. And we see that all the time. We see it in our lives. We see it, you know, movies illustrate it, books illustrate it. I mean, my, my go-to here, I think it was one of the best, is, is the, the first Rocky movie. If you remember the first Rocky movie, he's, 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 he's you know, box, uh, warming up, exercising, training, and, uh, and they come to him, and they say, don't do this. I think it's Adrian who comes to him and says, please don't do this. That guy's going to kill you. 
you can't win. And he said, I'm not trying to win. I just want to go 15 rounds. If I go 15 rounds with the champ, that means I'm somebody. I'm something. What is that? Kinodoxia. Glory grabbing. Glory grabbing. Right? And so, the Bible tells us this. This is us. We are kinodoxia. And so he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, the same mind as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, he's, okay, now we're going to see, what's the cure? Same mindset for being kinodoxia, for being a glory grabber. And this passage right here opens up a great insight into the very nature of God. And there's a little grammar lesson we need to look at here, and I know how excited you guys are. Oh, grammar, Bob, man, we missed the eighth grade grammar classes. All right? Well, here we go. If you look at this passage in verse 6 where it says, who being in very nature God, all right? That's a participle. The being there is that participle. It's, 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 uh, and translating this is key to this. What is a participle for you, those of you that really messed up on grammar? It's a verbal adjective, a verb that's used to describe a noun. For example, a crying baby, okay? Crying then tells us something about the baby. In the Greek, there are participles that are called circumstantial participles. There will not be a test on this, okay? But to understand them, circumstantial participles, you've got to understand the context. The context is key because there's four. It could go four ways, causal, concessive, conditional, or derative. I'm just throwing these things out. Just I'm coming to it. Hang with me. If you translate a, a, a participle as causal, then you would use the word because in front of it. Uh, let, me, let me give you an illustration. We have this crying baby, right? Okay, causal. That would say, because the baby is crying, we won't go to the restaurant. All right? There's a cause there. Concessive. Although, or in spite of the baby crying, we went to the restaurant. We conceded. We decided to go. We're telling you the baby was crying, but we decided to, to go. So, although, or in spite of. Conditional means, if the baby is crying, we won't go. See the condition? If the baby's crying, not going. Very good thing for parents to remember right there. Conditional. If your baby's crying, don't go. Don't go. Don't think that getting into a place with a whole bunch of strangers who are all looking at the crying baby is going to make the baby go, oh, well, then I should be quiet. Right? Not happening. Had five kids. Didn't learn it very well. Okay? Durative. Okay? That's duration. While the baby is crying, we won't go. So, with this passage where it says, who being in very nature God. Basically, the context gives us just two choices there, but I think one choice is better, better explains the whole context. But one choice is this. Some, and some versions, you'll see this in some versions. This is taking a long time. I'm really sorry. I didn't mean for it to go this long. It's some versions take it as being concessive, right? That is kind of like in spite of the fact that he was God. Jesus made himself nothing. Jesus came in spite of the fact. It's a concession, concedes, all right? 
it focuses on what he gave up. It's kind of like, in spite of the fact that he's God, he decided to come. And from a human standpoint, this makes perfect sense. Because if you think about it, if I'm God, I don't have to serve anybody, right? That's the good thing about being God. Jesus became a servant in spite of the fact that he was God. Okay, that's one view. And it's kind of like that's the way it would be if I was God, right? If I was God and I was going to serve you, it would be like, in spite of the fact that I don't have to, I'm going to. It would be grudging. You don't want a God that is anything like me, right? But here's my take on this, and I'm not alone in this. I didn't think this up myself, okay? There's, there's a strong case for this by quite a few scholars. If you understand the context and the flow of Paul's argument, what he's saying is exactly the opposite of concessive. What he's saying is it should be causal. It should be the cause. In other words, it ought to be translated like this. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who precisely because he was God, in his very nature, precisely because he was God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be taken advantage of, and he became a servant. He became a servant not in spite of the fact that he was God. He became a servant because he was God. You see how that changes the focus just a little bit. Because what it means is, it means this, it is in the nature of God to serve. Think about that. It's in God's nature to serve. That's fantastic. That's our God. That's the God we serve. It's in his nature to serve. I used to think of it in the sense of this kind of thing of what he gave up for me. And now I think of it of what he gladly did for me because he wanted to. He loved it. I have two brothers that are missionaries. I have two brothers, and they're both missionaries. Um, and, I, and I remember one time talking to them and just saying, because I went and visited them a few times, and all of a sudden I was just struck by the difference in the society they were living in and the society that I live in. Like, for one, they had no heat. There's no heat. This is a European country, and it's still true today. They had no heat in their homes. They had no heat in their restaurants. They didn't see what the point of it was. I saw what the point of it was right away because I visited in the winter one time, and I said, why are you guys going to bed with flannels and gloves and knit hats? And they're like, because it's going to get real cold in here. Everything's tile around here. They use a lot of tile in their buildings. It's going to get cold, and it's going to stay cold. And I was just like, this is the goofiest country in the whole world. And I remember asking my brother, I said, do you ever, like, think about what you miss? What you've missed? McDonald's? Never, (laughs) right? And he said, no. All I think about is what I've gained here. This is the most incredible country. I love it. I love the people. I love that I'm here. It doesn't even occur to me what I've given up. It doesn't even occur to me because what I've given up is tiny in in comparison to what I've gotten. And I just remember thinking, I'm ashamed that I don't even think that way. And so in, in Jesus He's not a ladder climber. 
It's not, it's not him thinking of what he's given up. It's thinking of what he's gained. And this is what he's telling us. Have, this, have your relationships with one another. Have the same mindset who being in very, because precisely because he was God. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He's the opposite of a glory grabber. He's the opposite of kenodoxia. What is he? He's a glory giver-upper, if that's a word. I don't think it is, but he's a glory. He just gave it up. He said, wait, I love these people so much. This, no, them, yes. That's so, because, you know, if you think about the job chart of the universe, that's God right at the top, right? There's no promotions from there. And Jesus gives it up, not grudgingly, not, okay, I'll save them. It's not like in the Trinity, God said someone has to go at some point in time, you know, eternity past, someone has to go to redeem my people. And they're all looking around, you know, they're all doing that pinky. No, Jesus is like, I want to. I want to. This is awesome. What a great opportunity for me to serve, to serve my father and to serve these people. That's the kind of God we serve. He's a servant God. And he goes willingly. Because he said, the people I love need me. So there's no decision to be made. And so when we go back to John 8, because this is that whole idea. We want to understand kenodoxia, what's going on there. That's what we are. That's what the Pharisees are. Jesus has already identified that even previously. Be careful of those people who seek their own glory, who build themselves up in front of everyone, who speak loudly, who, who pray loudly so everyone will hear, who condemn others, who mock. Be careful of those people. They're glory grabbers. And so in John chapter 8 here, he's saying, I'm not a glory grabber. I'm not possessed by a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there's one who seeks it. He is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. So he said, I'm not, a, I'm not seeking glory for myself. That's you. Your kenodoxia. So what am I living for? He says, I'm living to honor and glorify God. And how will that be shown? Verse 51, very truly I tell you. All right, let me just, real quick, that very truly is that, that Greek way of going truly, truly. It's that Greek way, and this gets to something we said earlier. It's that Greek way of saying, if you don't listen, listen to this. Hear this. This is important. Look at me. Get this. That's what's being said there when he says, it says truly, truly, literally in the Greek. He says, very truly, I tell you. So hear this. Whoever obeys my word will never see death. Whoever follows me will have everlasting life, eternal life. Remember, Jesus taught about those two, the two Greek words. He taught us those words for life. One is bios, physical life, simply existing, eating, drinking, you know, just existing, breathing. And one is zoe, that is 
a life that has this incredible, infused with meaning and purpose, a life that's worth living, a life that invigorates and makes you alive, a life that is, is, has joy in it, has purpose. This is what I'm for. And he says this, it's eternal zoe. If you live eternal bios, just existing, that's hell. Because it's nothing. It's worthless, purposeless. Eternal zoe is life here on earth and into the future that's full of meaning, purpose, that gives you a reason for living, a reason to be alive. And so he says this, whoever obeys my word, they'll, they'll get eternal Zoe, they'll never see death. All right? So, we looked at the insult. They said, this is who you are. Now we're going to see the response. Because he's, he's taught. He answered. He came back at them. He threw things back at them in a sense. And their response, who are you? At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever... Dro- Whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died. And so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? I don't know if you noticed this, but they've asked this twice before. Going back in John 7, back early, they've asked this twice before. Who do you think you are? He keeps stunning them. This is a phrase of a person who's stunned, right? He keeps stunning them, and they can't figure out what... He just is blowing them away. They are thinking through the implications of what Jesus is saying. And it's dawning on them the enormity of what he's saying. He's claiming to be greater than any prophet. And they're beginning to realize that. He's making a claim to life that is beyond what they have ever heard or imagined. He's saying it's zoe, eternal zoe, not bios. You guys are this living bios. You're just existing, you're eating, you're drinking, you're consuming, you're buying, you're selling. You're just existing. That's a terrible way to live. It's a terrible way to, have to run a life. I've, because um, I'm a pastor, I'm involved in funerals. I see people oftentimes that know they're about to die. And uh, I've heard people express their regrets. I've heard people express their joys. I've never heard a person say, as they're dying, I wish I had more money. I wish I had a bigger house. I wish I had this car or that car. I've never heard those kind of things. But I have heard people say, I wish I'd have made that right with my son years ago. I wish I hadn't have done that to someone. The regrets are often relational. Then occasionally you have these great times, not necessarily just occasionally, these great times where people say, I'm ready. This has been a good life. I've been involved. I talked to a guy not that long ago. I've been following Jesus all these years the best I can. I'm ready to see him. I'm ready to go. You know, 
the worst thing we can do is just live a bios life. Just exist. Money can be important as a tool to be used to help, to serve, to love. A house can be important as a tool. A car can be important as a tool. All of these things, they're tools. You don't go to a job site and see a carpenter go, this hammer, man, my whole life I've been trying to get this hammer. If you do, you're going, you're just, this is wrong. There's something wrong here. It's just a tool. And yet, we're just like that. We worship our tools. And he's telling us, that's just bios. Don't fall for it. It's a lie. You know, it's Star Wars. It's a trap. It's a trap. And so, he's telling them, I obey. This is what I do. And I want you to, he says, this is my charge. Obey. Believe in the one God has sent. He says this a number of times in there. What are we supposed to do? How do we go from bios to zoe? Believe in the one God has sent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and die. You shall be saved. Believe in me. He says it multiple times. And they're just like, wait, are you greater than our father Abraham? Really? Do you really think that? And this is it. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? In verse 54, he replies. He says, if I, Jesus replied, if I glory myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. He's talking about glory again. He was just talking about it. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he was glad. All right, he says, I'm not glorifying myself. That would be worthless My Father is glorifying me as I glorify Him. Now, I just want to touch on this because this is another one of these things, and this happened uh, a couple weeks ago. I was talking to somebody, and they just brought up this whole idea of, you know, earlier where he said that the Father demands to be worshipped. Let me see here. Where he says, nope, hang with me. Those of you at home are getting dizzy watching these slides go by. Um, I am not seeking, verse 50, if I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge, all right? So there is one who seeks it, and this brings up a question that we have to, we have to deal with, and, and this was mentioned to me not that long ago. A person said, so God is seeking to be glorified. He said, doesn't that sound petty, that God is saying, worship me, worship me, C.S. Lewis wrote about this extensively, and uh, I love what he has to say because I think he, he keys in on biblically what's going on there. But he, and, and he dealt with it. That was the thing. He raised that question. He said, this was a question that kept me from becoming a Christian for, for a time. He said, I struggled with the idea that God seemed to need us to glorify him. Why so much talk about it? Why in the Psalms is it brought up so many times? I mean, he says, I mean, it's okay to say, be thankful for the good things I give you, but to glorify? He said it was, it was hideously, hideously like saying, what I most want to be told is that I'm good and great. He says, that was my charge against God. It seems so petty. He even said this. He said, it's like me. He's an accomplished author. 
He said, it's like me demanding that my dog honor me for my books, that my dog barks out praise for my books. He says, that's what I feel like when I see these things. Or better yet, he said, why would you worship a God who needs nothing? Why does he need worship? But, and I'm quoting him from, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether it's God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of a compliment, approval, like giving an honor. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. All enjoyment overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising each other like Romeo and Juliet praising each other. People praise their favorite author, he said. People praise when they see a beautiful, a beautiful scenery. They praise what they love to do. They praise weather, wine, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages. They praise children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles. And I love this, because this is C.S. Lewis. So he lists all these things they praise, and he says, even sometimes they praise politicians. <laughs> I was like, yep, things don't change, right? He said, I had not noticed either that just as men or women spontaneously praise whatever they value, they also urge others to join them in praising it. A young man with his friends might say about uh, a woman, isn't she lovely? Isn't she lovely? Isn't she? You see, see a beautiful painting, you say, isn't that beautiful? You read a good book, isn't that a great book? You see a good movie, isn't that a great movie? You praise it. You praise it. You sense something good about it, and it flows. That's how you express. The psalmists, he said, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of something they care about. Because in doing it, we find great joy. And he said the key is that the delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Like a man saying, I just have to tell you to his, to, to his um, uh, fiance, I just have to tell you how beautiful you are. I can't keep it any longer. I'm about to explode. You're the most wonderful person I've ever seen or met, and I love you. Right? It comes out. It flows. Praise flows for something we deem praiseworthy. And we receive great joy in expressing that praise. Right? It's like, I've said this, yeah. It's like I read a book, and it tells me things about, man, these are ways you should compliment your wife. These are ways you should treat your wife. And I'm like, oh, look, one of them says, get her flowers. Well, great. So I go to the store, and I get some flowers. And I bring them, I say, here, I read that I'm supposed to do this. Here's your flower. Whoa. <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> Don't put them in the fireplace. Right? That, why? Because it, when we have joy, it brings praise naturally. It brings out praise naturally. And so we receive great joy in expressing praise and in others giving praise. Isn't this a great book? Wasn't that a great movie? Isn't this a funny joke? right? You tell a joke and everyone laughs. You go, yes, this is, I love this. I love making you laugh. The giving 
gives joy, and the person receiving it gives us joy back. So God tells us to glorify him. And when he does, it's in worshiping him that he communicates his presence to us, and it is in worshiping and serving him that we find joy. See, when God says, glorify me, it's not because he needs us to glorify. He knows that when I express my joy to him, when I express my praise to him, it brings joy to me. And when we get together, even this morning, and we, we worship together, let's say we sing songs together, God says, I speak to you through that. I communicate to you through this. This is how we talk to each other. It's not that I need your glory. It's that I know you need to glorify me because when you do, it brings you joy. See, so when God says, worship me, glorify me, praise me, what is he doing? I want you to do what brings you great joy. I don't need it. You do. We need to praise. We need to praise. We need to worship. We need, and not just, not just with God, we need to do that with people. We need to do it in our lives. You know, even in Judaism, an interesting thing when you study this, the essence of a sacrifice was not really that men gave bulls and goats to God, but by their doing that, God gave himself to men and women. And in the central act of our own worship, it's far clearer because we begin to see that God manifests himself to us when we praise and worship him. If you're feeling like I'm not seeing God, I'm not sensing God, I feel a little lost, I feel, try praising and glorifying him. Try looking up, okay, what are some things about God that I can honor? Not things he gave me. What are just some things about God? I've, I've been working on this. I try to do this time when, in my prayer time. I try to start with saying, God, I want to praise and honor you, and, I want to, and I'll list one thing that is just true about God. It has, doesn't necessarily, it's not something he did for me, and, and not even salvation, but saying, God, I thank you that you are the God who serves people. I thank you that that's true. I thank you that you are light. And in you, there's no darkness at all. I thank you that you are life. And not that you gave me life, I thank him for that, but this moment is just about who he is, that you are God. And all the things I know about you, just because I know this is who you are. And then I'll pray, saying, oh, and I thank you for this, or I thank you for that, whatever those things may be. But I want to start it with a recognition that I'm just glorifying and honoring him off the bat, from the front end. And so when we get here in this, Jesus is saying to them, he's telling them, I, it's not about me glorifying myself. I'm glorifying my father, and he's glorifying me. And he's saying, I know him. I know him, and you don't. And this is how I can glorify him. This is how I can honor him because I know him personally. He's my father. He's my father. And because we looked at this last week because of our adoption into Christ, he's your father. He's your father. 
He tells them, your relation to him is mere formality. My relation to him is familial. He, we're family. We're family. What a great thing that we can say that. And then in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You know, all along, Jesus has been giving them truth nuggets, in a sense, almost. You know, he's telling them things, telling them things, telling them. And he knows it's like Hansel and Gretel. You know, so he's leaving things so that it leads them to a certain place. And it's still building, but he's hitting them here with something that's incredible. Because now he's telling them, you know what? Your father was excited about this day, me being on this earth as a Savior. He was so excited about seeing it, and he has seen it, and he has seen it, and he is glad. And that word glad is more than just like, yeah, cool, awesome. No, it's this idea of this, this joy, this he's just like, it's just coming out because he's so excited to see this is God's plan. I'm seeing it. So we have the insult, this is who you are. We have the response after he teaches, who are you? They knew who he was at first, and now they're not so sure. And now we have, I just called it the illumination, I am. They say to him, you are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and, and you have seen Abraham? And they said, let us get this straight. You're saying that Abraham, our father, who has been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years, you saw, he saw you, you saw him. You're telling us that? Because it, it's like they're starting to get it, and they just can't believe it. And in reality, they won't believe it. But they're realizing the implications of what he's saying, and they're realizing what it means and what it would mean to them. And they've decided, no, not giving up our power, not giving up our authority, not giving up our position in this society. We've got it good. We're at the top. You would change that. We're not doing it. You keep linking us with the lowest people. You keep associating us. You keep think, saying, we're just like them. We reject that. We reject that. Because it's too scary. It's too much. Verse 58. Very truly. Here we go. Truly, truly. All right? It's truly, truly. So he's saying again, listen to me. I'm going to drop a truth bomb on you. So listen. Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. All right, so this is Jesus taking on the name of God, the name of God the Father, Jehovah. This is Jesus taking on Yahweh. It's actually more accurate. Going all the way back, going all the way back to Moses at the burning bush. Moses saying, who do I tell? What do I tell them when I come? Who do I, what's your name? And God says, you tell them that I am sent you, all right? And this is those, you know, we've talked about this, those, those uh, in, the, in the ancient Hebrew, there were no vowels, just consonants. And then your knowledge of it, you filled in the vowels because you knew what was trying to be said. So it's four. It's just yod, hey, vav, hey. It's where we get Yahweh. That's where we get that. And, and it simply means this. It means to exist, to be. There's no beginning. There's no end. It's just to be. And it, it, we can't wrap our heads around that because we're 
linear in time. God's outside of time. So Jesus just took that name. He says, you know, burning bush, Moses, yo, hey, Bob, hey, that's me. That's me. I am God. And it's interesting because they've just come out of the Feast of Tabernacles, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, there's multiple times that they use this from the book of Isaiah where uh, God uses his name of, of Yahweh, and he keeps saying, the one who blesses you is I am. The one who does this is I am. And they keep reciting that over and over and over, all during seven days of feasting. They recite that because to, to honor him and to give praise to him, right? And Jesus, just as the festival ends, goes, oh, and by the way, I am. All those things you've been chanting all week, thank you. I appreciate it, right? And they instantly, this is not, those who have ears, let them hear. They know exactly what he's saying. They instantly understand what he's just done. This is too plain. There's no way around it. And so it says they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. It's interesting. He doesn't say, no, 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 you misunderstood me. No, he's like, oh, they're picking up stones? They got it, right? They understand. Smart cookies, right? Put them in the bluebird group. So let's think about this real quick. Wrap it up. What does this mean to us? Right? My favorite pastor is a man named Lon Solomon. I used to, we used to do stuff together, and he, he uh, ministered in Northern Virginia for a long time, and he would always, in the, at the end of his sermon, say, okay, so what? So what? We study Scripture. It's very interesting. Oh, cool, cool grammar lesson, Bob. So what? Right? Here's the so what. This is things we need to be thinking about. First of all, to believe in him, Jesus commanded them, this is the ultimate way that you obey and honor God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do that, it's the beginning, he says, of an incredible relationship. If you sense, I don't know him, you realize I'm a sinner, I need a savior. Jesus was the savior. He lived, he died, he rose from the dead. He did that for me. He's just kind of been illustrating that even more. He proved that he can deliver the goods. I believe in him. I've decided to step out in faith, and I'm going to follow him with my life. That's a huge deal, right? Too many people, church, uh, uh, following Jesus is like church on Sundays and maybe something else. And he's like, no, 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 this is a whole life deal. Everything is wrapped up in this. To believe in him is the beginning of an incredible relationship. And it is the beginning, if you stick with it, it is the beginning of a process that years later you will see what God has done in your life over the years. There'll be ups and downs, you know, steps forward, steps back, highs and lows, but over the long haul, you will see I'm not the person I was because of Jesus. You will see that. He will work in your life in tangible ways. Second thing is, there will always be pushback. It's been this way for Christians throughout history. Just be experienced. Expect it. Be ready for it. There will be times where if we stand for the truth, there will be consequences that could be negative in our lives. You know, I don't want to sit up here because, you know, God says that teachers are held to a stricter account. So I don't want to sit up here and tell you it's just going to be awesome. It's going to be so much fun. Right? It's going to be like, Bush gardens for the rest of your life. 
this has got to be better than that. But anyways, you know, it's, I, want to, I, I want to be honest. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard sometimes. But here's the thing. I don't follow God because he does good things to me. I follow God because he's God. That's the thing we got to get straight first. There's God. And because he's God, following him is the most logical thing for me to do. But it doesn't mean it's going to be a cakewalk. It's going to be difficult. In a few couple of weeks, we're going to have some slides and prayer and just a little bit about um, Voice of the Martyrs, an organization that tries to minister and keeps track of these things. And because even today, there are people giving up their lives for Jesus Christ at an incredible rate. It just isn't, doesn't make our national news, so it's not the flavor of the moment, and we don't know about it. But I want to flip that, too. Right now, some of the greatest um, revivals in the history of the world are happening. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Muslims are coming to Christ. Missionaries throughout Muslim lands are just going, I don't know what's going on. I was just reading the other day, a guy, it just happened a couple weeks ago, and he just said, a guy knocked on his door, said, I've been looking for you for two weeks. I had this dream, and it was Jesus, and he told me to find you. So what are you going to tell me? Right? Just unbelievable. And, and, I, and I'm kind of like, oh, really? But it's interesting, there's reports from missionaries, especially in Muslim lands all over the world, that are saying, what is going on with dreams? God is doing something. It's humongous, and we don't even know about it, do we? So we must, there will be pushback. We must stand for what we believe, as Jesus did. We must stand without being combative or ugly or mean-spirited. We must lovingly communicate the truth to people. We must seek the joy of glorifying God, find ways to honor him and see the joy that comes with it. We're going to give you some ways Right? We're going to have a ministry to port to the homeless people coming up in December. And then in March, we're going to have uh, being able angel tree gifts to be able to bring Christmas to kids who won't have a Christmas. Um, we're going to bring you ideas of, for backpacks to children in Arizona who will not have a Christmas apart from that. Start seeking it. Seek the joy of glorifying God. And it doesn't have to, I don't want to make it sound like you got to do, You can do it in so many places. Start thinking of ways of honoring God and glorifying God and serving people, and you will find joy in that. And see the privilege that we have in being in relationship with God. You are his beloved. You, Ephesians tells us that you are his treasure, his masterpiece. He loves you. You are an adopted daughter or son of God, and he longs to spend time with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to take it seriously. Lord, you know, for all of us, we have failings. We have struggles. We, we have difficulties that we are going through. And help us to um, think clearly, to remember how you've worked in the past, to dedicate ourselves to you because you're God. And Lord, in doing that, slowly but surely, we find the joy that you have for us that comes in honoring and glorifying you. Lord, this time together is precious to us, but we also know it's precious to you, that you inhabit the praises of your people. Help us to be those kind of people, Lord. Help us to walk out of here different, just a little bit maybe, just different from the way we walked in. 
And Father, we take this time to thank you. We're going we're gonna to eat together. We're going to have fun together. And just that we can do that, that we can fellowship, and we can honor and glorify you in doing that. And uh, so we pray this food, pray for this food that you would honor and bless it. Use it for your glory. And Lord, help us to be willing to be used for your glory also. In Jesus' name, amen.